Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. Welcome to A Public Affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. Since I started doing this show last summer, we've talked regularly about increasing heat, food insecurity, drought, flooding, biodiversity loss. And we've talked about how these issues exacerbate economic and racial inequalities and how they impact human physical and mental health. But it's also crucial that we talk about solutions, of course. And on today's show, we're going to talk about what I think is one of the most exciting and uplifting community-based environmental justice solutions around urban food forests. A food forest or forest garden, to quote my guest Emily Steinway, consists of a variety of plants that produce edibles in a forest setting. A food forest is different from an orchard or garden because it includes a diverse range of plants, including trees and shrubs. In a recent article in The Guardian, my other guest today, Brad Lancaster, calls the food forest he has helped create in Tucson, Arizona, a living pantry. Food forests are designed to mimic natural ecosystems, shade the land, protect soil from erosion, and provide habitat for insects, animals, and birds. There are more than 85 documented food forests all over the United States, most of them on public spaces in large cities. So on today's show, we have two guests to tell us the stories of two very different urban food forests and their many ecological and social benefits. And I'm excited to talk about those broader benefits as well as just the experience of being in a food forest, creating a food forest, and what both the um, joys of that are and the challenges. So, first of all, we have with us here in the studio, Emily Steinway, who is a co-founder of Wisconsin Food Forests and owner of Emily Plants, a Madison-based garden and edible landscape installation business. She was also the organizer of the Lansing Food Forest on Madison's east side. Welcome to a Public Affair, Emily. Thank you for having me. And we are also fortunate to have with us today from Tucson, Arizona, Brad Lancaster, who is a rainwater harvesting expert permaculture teacher and co-founder of the nonprofit organization Desert Harvesters. He also co-created Tucson, Arizona's Neighborhood Foresters Program, which has planted over 1,500 native food-bearing trees alongside water-harvesting earthworks in the Dunbar Springs neighborhood of Tucson. Welcome, Brad. Hey, thanks. Great to be here. We're really glad to have you with us. And welcome, listeners. Please join our conversation. If you have a question for our guest today about food forests, urban edible landscaping, or more, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WORT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. So we have so much to talk about today, but I really want to foreground, first of all, for listeners who might be unfamiliar with this concept, what a food forest is uh, and what it offers an urban landscape. And then we'll get into the stories of your two places where you've worked to create these food forests. So Brad, uh, I'm going to start with you. Could you tell us a little bit more about this concept of a food forest and what it offers an urban landscape? 
Yeah. So, um, so I'm in the Sonoran Desert, and there's over 400 native food plants to the Sonoran Desert. So we've tried to tap into that. And uh, we plant many different strata or levels of edibles. So um, we first start with the trees because in our environment, we are sun bleached, sun cooked. And uh, we actually in our climate have greater diversity of species grow where there's shade as opposed to where there's full sun. So we grow shade islands under which we then plant um, large shrubs mid-sized shrubs, small shrubs, even shorter ground cover, vines, tubers. So we're trying to get all the niches of the forest met with our planting, um, while at the same time selecting from the ethnobotanical record plants that produce food, medicine, uh, craft materials like fiber, uh, and so forth. So it's a living pantry, uh, pharmacy, and craft shop. Beautiful. Thanks for that evocative description. Um, and I'll, I'll stick with you for a second, Brad. How did you get involved with Food Forest? Tell us more about the story of the Dunbar Spring Neighborhood Foresters Organization and, and, and what it's created in Tucson, which you just described. Sure. Well, um, I grew up in Tucson, but my family's not from here. And so we had no oral history connecting us to this place. But it turns out that I was living in a multi-hundred-year-old food forest. Uh, I just didn't know it. None of our family knew it at the time. And, uh, <clears throat> and unfortunately, we weeded out a number of the understory species in our ignorance uh, as I was trying to make money to play arcade games. Um, so uh, when I became enlightened, you know, realized the fault of my ways, um, you could maybe say that what I'm doing now is trying to get some karmic payback or, you know, uh, um, make up for what I did. So with our neighborhood foresters effort, we... Um, uh, my brother and I moved to a, a downtown neighborhood very lacking in trees, and so we strove to try and bring back a canopy. We found out in the history of the neighborhood that there had been a canopy before, but it had been short-lived, exotic, uh, less hardy trees. And so we decided, okay, if we're going to try again, let's do stuff that's hardier. So we looked to the native plant palette because it's the best adapted to our climate, soils, and wildlife, and um, started planting. And but the one thing that's maybe unique about what we do is we plant the rain before we plant the plants. Mm. So we plant the plants within or beside these uh, depressed rain uh, water harvesting basins that captured rainfall and runoff from the street. So the street becomes the free irrigation source of the street side vegetation. Um, and uh, we, yeah. So we, we did this in part because the neighborhood, when we moved to the neighborhood, was calling for more interaction, more collaboration, and, uh, and streetscapes where it would be comfortable to do so. So we just answered the call that the neighborhood already had and um, tried to do it in a unique way. Thanks. That's Brad Lancaster of the Dunbar Springs neighborhood in Tucson, Arizona. And we're going to turn now closer to home and hear uh, another story of uh, food forest movement here in Wisconsin. Um, Emily Steinway, tell us about how you got involved with food forests here in the Madison area. Um, I really like eating fruit. I like all different kinds of fruit. And so as a hobby, I started planting fruit trees about 10 years ago. And then I got into permaculture and got into gardening. And I realized that a food forest is an excellent way to grow a large variety of many different kinds of fruit. 
And that's kind of how I started. Yeah. And tell us a little bit more about the food forest concept here in our temperate and and more watered climate than what Brad was just Um, describing. So here in Wisconsin, the easiest place to plant a food forest is in a a sunny lawn. That's going to be the easiest place. Um, And so we... We look look for places that are reasonably flat, and we do need water access, but usually we can get that from a hose for the first few years while the plants are establishing. And what are you trying to, Brad was talking about the layers of the forest. What are you trying to right. create when you think about envisioning a right. food forest? Yeah, so, so we're looking at a diverse planting of mostly food-producing plants, uh, primarily fruits and nuts. We, we plant mostly edible and native plants. And we, we also plant the trees first, uh, the trees and the shrubs, because they take a little bit longer to produce. And then we'll go back in the next few years and fill in with herbs and edible flowers, uh, perennial edibles like rhubarb and asparagus, and other understory plants, ground covers. And so you're basically trying to mimic the forest ecosystem with all its different layers. Um, you're creating... Uh, an ecosystem that's going to be stable over time because you're mimicking a pattern that's found in nature. So forests are the primary ecosystem here in Wisconsin. I've had the good fortune of witnessing your work take shape uh, and your work and, and the many collaborators you've worked with. Um, a couple blocks away from where I live is the Lansing Food Forest on the east side of Madison. Um, tell us the story of the Lansing Food Forest and how it came to be. So Aaron McWalter, one of the founders of Wisconsin Food Forests, uh, looks out across the street as the, at this blank lawn, is, which is what it used to be. Uh, it was owned by the city, uh, the city engineering department, and the only thing happening there was people would cut across it and the city would come and mow it. And so we realized, wow, this is a great place to plant a food forest. So we started by meeting with community members on site, had a couple meetings, we met with the city, we talked to the alder, uh, I created a survey so that people could say what kinds of plants they wanted at the food forest, and then we planted in spring of 2020 after we got permission from the city. Um, the city of Madison has an edible landscapes permit process, which it's because of a group called Madison Fruits and Nuts that got that so that we were able to plant on this site. And then, so we, we started planting in 2020, and then we've been adding little bits on since then. And now that it's more mature, it's taking a lot less work. Um, people in, in the community have helped with weeding and, and mulching, and so now it's, it's fairly established. And it's also become more of a community gathering space. We've added some additional features besides the food forest, like a natural playground, uh, a little free library, a couple benches, and now the site is even home to a, a neighborhood market that we have three or four times a year. So it's become really a great place to hang out, and the kids love the berries, and the parents and the kids come and, and hang out on the site. I can attest to that, watching my uh, two young daughters come in, especially when the currants and the strawberries are ripe. Um, they, they are a magnet for young children. <laughs> we'll talk a little bit more about those community be- benefits and uh, some of the ways that uh, people co-create these edible landscapes um, in a minute. But first, I want to reintroduce you both. 
My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Emily Steinway of Wisconsin Food Forest and Brad Lancaster of Tucson, Arizona's Neighborhood Foresters. We're talking about the edible urban landscapes of food forests. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM, and we'd love to have you join us. If you have a question, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, or reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook. So we were just talking about the um, joys of watching children grab uh, berries and, and people sort of coming to these landscapes like magnets um let's hear from you brad what are some of your greatest joys in creating food for us and are there particular memories that stand out to you in this process you've been working on, on this a long time there in tucson uh well a couple that come to mind is uh every time it rains uh we've got folks running out in their bathing suits to see uh how the street runoff is being directed to street side basins and how flooding's been reduced and how we're just seeing all that free water soak in to, that will then uh, freely irrigate these plants long into the dry uh, spell after the rain. Um, so that's always a celebration when the rain falls. Uh, and then the fruit that erupts, so similar to what Emily was saying, uh, it's been great to see uh, the kids coming out and harvesting the prickly pear cactus fruit, the wolf berries, the hackberries, and so forth, and the mesquite pods. And we found that uh, crime has dropped since we've planted these food forests because there's a lot more neighbors on the street uh, hanging out under the shade, harvesting. And so there's a greater chance to actually get to know your neighbor, to meet them, to say hello, to exchange names. And so, uh, and the other thing is, it's really hard to commit a crime when there's a bunch of giggling kids picking fruit in the street. It just kind of changes your, your mindset. Um, so all those have been great along with the wildlife that's come in. So we now have resident roadrunners, uh, javelina, um, and uh, dozens of native bird species that have returned since we've replanted their habitat. So we live in a much richer place and, we, and lively place than before these plantings. And you said you're in a downtown neighborhood in downtown Tucson, correct? And this is a city of what? Uh, half a million half people. Half a million people, yeah. So, and you have that kind of wildlife coming right into the, to the center city there. Has coexistence with wildlife been a challenge? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because um, we're surrounded by, you know, uh, paved death strips. So, um, that's one of the reasons uh, we've done a lot of uh, traffic calming strategies in our neighborhood. Uh, there used to be a lot of hit and runs of wildlife, of pets, and of people. Um, so uh, we integrate our traffic calming with water harvesting and food forestry. So when we create a traffic calming roundabout or traffic circle, or um, a curb extension, uh, other people call these things chicanes, that narrows the street and protects on-street parking. We always depress them so they're lower than the asphalt. So then we direct the runoff, stormwater runoff from the asphalt into these depressed basins, and there we plant. So they're traffic calming, water harvesting, flood control, and free irrigation of the food forest that grows within. And as you're describing this, I'm trying to envision it, Brad. Can you give us a sense of the the scale of this neighborhood food forest, um, the size of it? 
Uh, yeah, so um, our neighborhood is six blocks wide and six blocks long, if you will, um, city blocks. And we have we're lucky in that our neighborhood has pretty wide public rights of way for the most part. So 20 foot right of way. So that's the section of land between the property line and the street curb. So that enables us to do plantings on either side of a five foot wide path. We go five foot wide so people can walk side by side. Um, and uh, um, the it, it's an ongoing effort. We've planted over 1,700 trees since we started in 1996 and planted thousands of understory plants. Um, but uh, and we annually harvest over a million gallons of stormwater each year. Um, but we need to do 30 times this. So it's it's great what we've got, but we've really only just scratched the surface. And the forest is still it's prepubescent. It's it hasn't it hasn't reached full adolescence yet. It's still very young. So um, you know we started in 1996, and these trees species in their understory grow to be hundreds of years old. So. Um, we're, we're just starting this journey with them. And as you were saying, Emily, I know you are just starting the journey with Lansing mm -hmm. Food Forest and other projects that you're working on as well. But so far in this journey, what have the, been the biggest joys for you and what moments stand out to you? Um, I always like when you see a, a sunny lawn that, that nobody's using and you can transform that into a, into a food forest because there's so many benefits of, of taking that space and making it into into the food forest habitat, um, not just the fruit and the community, but also the carbon sequestration is a really important part of, of planting these perennial habitats. Um, trees and shrubs that are so such long-lived plants um, are going to be sequestering more carbon over time than than shorter-lived plants. Um, and then, like like we were saying earlier, just seeing the kids um, pick the strawberries and the currants, and you know, some some people don't care for black currants because they have a really strong flavor. But it's it's been interesting to see the kids just strip the bushes of all of the all of the currants and hardly leave any for the adults to try. Yeah, while we're while we're there, let's go ahead with some favorite plants that you love both planting and taking care of and seeing the benefits of. We'll we'll start with you, Emily, and then and then go to Brad. Sure. Uh, so for our for our tree species, we plant a lot of European pear, tart cherry, pawpaw, and American persimmon. Those are some some of my favorites. Uh, for the shrubs, we plant a ton of berry bushes. So there's there's Juneberry, currants. Nanking cherry, gooseberry, honeyberry. There's a lot of different berry bush choices. Um, and then rhubarb and asparagus, strawberries. I really like the edible flowers, uh, especially borage and nasturtiums. And then we'll put, we'll put herbs in. Uh, one of my favorite herbs is thyme. Uh, we'll occasionally do some vines in there. They can add some complexity to your, to your forest ecosystem. Um, so either plant them on a trellis or plant them on a on a sturdy tree that's large enough to support them. Uh, so either grapes or hardy kiwi are some ones that we can plant here. And some of these are um, plants that many people will be familiar with, native mm -hmm. plants, fruit-bearing plants and otherwise. But many of the ones you name people might not know so much about right. and know how to interact with or harvest. Mm -hmm. um, 
Could you share with us maybe a little bit about plants like serviceberry or sure. um, some of the others that you mentioned that sure. um, people might not be familiar with, but yeah. how you've seen people interacting with them? Yeah. Well, uh, serviceberry or juneberry, uh, amalanker is the, the scientific name or botanical name. It's actually a quite common shrub that's used for landscaping. Um, there's one right outside the studio door, I noticed oh. as I was coming in. It's just that a lot of people don't know that they're edible. And there are some that are bred for, for landscaping, office parks, etc. But then there are, there are some that are bred for eating the berries. And so those ones are going to have a better flavor. Uh, but that's, that's one that's extremely easy to grow. Anybody can grow a service berry. And they come in different sizes. Some are, are tall shrubs, some are shorter shrubs, and then some are a tree. But they'll fit, they'll fit into pretty much any landscape. Uh, another one that a lot of people probably don't know is pawpaw. Uh, Asimina triloba is the botanical name because uh, if you use the common name pawpaw, you may confuse it with another plant. So you'll want to, if you're doing a web search, look it up by the botanical name. Uh, it's actually native to North America. It's mostly found in the eastern United States. And we've just started extending the range into Wisconsin. Um, it's a large fruit about the size of a mango. Uh, it's ripe in September, but only for a, a few weeks, and it's very soft and perishable, so that's why you won't usually find it in the grocery store. You really need to eat it or process it right away after it comes off the tree. It's actually an understory tree, so it can grow in part shade. You do need at least two or three of them so that they'll cross-pollinate each other. Uh, but it's extremely easy to grow, hardly any pests and diseases, and it sort of tastes like mango, strawberry, banana, custard. Uh, diff different cultivars have different tastes, um, but I really like like it, and I, I've only actually eaten it three times in my life. Um, last year, I was fortunate to find one actually in the Eastmoreland neighborhood where Lansing Food Forest is, and so I'm going to try to save some of the seeds from that from that tree and try to propagate it. Great. Thanks for those stories. And Brad, we'll turn to you. Favorite plants and ways people are interacting with them there in your neighborhood in Tucson. Uh, so there's a number of bean trees. Uh, so I love the mesquite tree, which is like our native carob tree, has edible sweet pods we grind up into flour, um, which uh, is delicious and slows the body's intake of sugars. So this is a characteristic many of our native foods have. So they, um, they're great for people with hypoglycemia or diabetes. Um, and uh, love the Palo Verde trees that have edible flowers and seed. The desert ironwood, it's like our edamame and peanut tree. Edible purple and white flowers. Uh, the seed, when green, you process and eat like edamame. And when brown mature, process and eat like roasted uh, peanuts. Uh, and then a number of the berry plants growing under there are hackberry, wolfberry, uh, candalia, graythorn. Um, and then uh, uh, as we go further down, we get the cactus. Uh, so people might find that curious, but uh, we harvest the fruit of many of the cactus. Um, we also harvest the flower buds of the choya cactus. Um, and uh, there's tiny little pincushion cactus. We harvest dessert sized uh, fruits. And then we have our tubers like the devil's claw, um, which has uh, okra like fruit with sunflower-like seeds. Um, and uh, uh, also have the coyote gourd, which uh, 
makes for a great seed grenade and that uh, you make a little hole in the gourd, throw a bunch of other seed and you hurl it at areas that need vegetation. Um, especially good if they've got a basin, so they'll harvest water first. Uh, and then those seeds can be uh, um, soaked in water and eaten like sunflower seeds. Wonderful inventory and vivid description of the uses of some of these plants there. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm Douglas Haynes, and today I'm talking about urban food forests with Emily Steinway of Wisconsin Food Forests and Brad Lancaster of Tucson, Arizona's Neighborhood Foresters. If you'd like to join our conversation, please do give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WORT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. So I'm going to pick up right where we left off and talk about um, food and food security a little bit. Um, uh, we'll go back to you, Brad, What because you, you've had a long-term view of this forest urban food forest evolving in your neighborhood. Um, what impact have you seen all these edible plants right out people's front doors having on food security in the area? Well, it's uh, now we're, we're not dependent on leaving the neighborhood as we once were. And uh, I was inspired early on taking a um, Eco Village design course with Max Lindiger, where he told a story about how his Swiss grandfather was walking with him in the Swiss Alps and pointed to this section of forest being cut down. And he said, you know, that's where we got what we needed during the war. And uh, so what, where are we going to go in the next catastrophe? And uh, then, uh, um, then he turned to us and he said, so what's, what's your foothills? You know, where, where can you go? That's not a store where, you know, where's the living, um, the ecosystem that sustains you. And uh, so uh, I really resonated with that. And I looked around my neighborhood and I realized, man, we are nowhere near the foothills. Um, so uh, we can't afford that. Um, so looked around and then realized, man, we've got these super wide streets, really wide, barren public rights of way. Um, we've got school campuses, you know, school grounds with bare playgrounds, you know, maybe a basketball court and everything else is bare dirt. Um, we've got a number of uh, churches and other houses of worship with um, just barren parking lots and area around and realized, wow, we are really rich in public land, you know, in the commons. It's just that it's only pretty much being used for automobiles right now. And uh, so how can we bring back the life? And uh, so once we started doing that um, and the huge transformations happened. You know, the temperature started to drop. There was interest in the commons. So you wanted to hang out, see what was happening. Um, you saw more people. Uh, and, um, uh, and then when things started to produce with the fruit and whatnot, a lot more wildlife started to come in. You know, not just with the fruit, but the flowers as well. And, uh, and then the people too. Uh, but we found, um, and maybe Emily's found a similar thing, as you know, mentioning some of the lesser known native plants. A lot of people don't know how to use these native plants, uh, native food bearing plants, because that's not part of their family tradition, or they moved here from somewhere else and don't know about it. Or maybe it is part of their family's tradition, but it's no longer practiced. So we have to have um, 
workshops and uh, and whatnot and, and provide educational materials to show people, well, this is how you can harvest this. This is how you process it. This is different ways you can eat it. And so we, we include resources on that at the neighborhoodforesters.org website and also uh, the desertharvesters.org websites. Um, Thank you. So uh, over that period, have you seen, since you said 1996, you started this work, right? Have you seen a kind of gradual evolution of people getting more involved in using the fruits at their front door and all, all this, these other foods? Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's really been uh, the, um, the, these, these public events, like when we've had these celebrations where we've had mesquite millings and show people how to... Um, harvest and mill their mesquite pods and then we had these we used to have these crazy bake sales where um there'd be dozens of different uh things offered like mesquite baklava mesquite tamales mesquite tortillas um uh, brownies donuts you know you name it and uh so people saw wow okay there's there's foods that i know but here's a new ingredient being used in it. So it was a great way to bridge the scary unknown with the familiar uh, known. And uh, and then they're saying like, well, this is better than the usual donut I get. Um, and in so many ways, because it's healthier form too. So uh, those and like, we've had prickly pear fruit harvesting and choya bud, flower bud um, harvesting workshops. So then once people have done the process and they have eaten the result. Now it's no longer just this amorphous theoretical thing. They they now know it through their taste buds, through their their, their muscles, um, you know, through the practice. And uh, you're, it's much easier to remember something after you've done it rather than just read about it. Uh, so um, then certain individuals get more excited than others. They take it on, and you know, if you can get at least one person on a block that starts doing this more regularly, then it it starts to grow because the other neighbors see them. Oh, they're out here again. They, they were doing this last year. Now, what are they doing again? So they go out and talk to them. And, uh, and then you're like, yeah, so harvest from this tree. This one tastes good. Not that one. That one doesn't taste tree because every tree tastes different. So we mark the better tasting trees. We go back to those year after year. We collect seed from the good tasting ones. We ignore the not so good tasting ones. Uh, and the information spreads. Because for this to spread, it has to become a regular practice. It has to come be integrated into our culture. So we're we're trying to bring it back in a new context uh, in this urban setting. Yeah, what you're describing there is this slow cultural change, cultural evolution, and it sounds like um, cultural events have played a role in that as well. Um, Emily, I'll turn to you to talk about that process as well as an outdoor educator as well. Mm -hmm. I know you're really involved in that process of teaching people mm -hmm. about um, these plants, edible plants in particular that you're working with. What would you like to share about um, what you've learned about how people incorporate these foods into their lives or interact with uh, urban food forests? Um, I want to mention a, a website that's a good resource if you're looking to do some urban forest, uh, foraging. It's called fallingfruit.org, and it's a, a crowdsourced map of different public and some non-public trees, mostly that, that produce edible fruit or nuts where people can go and, and harvest. And it's uh, it's got a lot of trees from all over the world, 
many plants that you may not have heard of, uh, some mushrooms even as well are, are on there. And so that's a good resource for someone that's, that's looking for some of this free food that you can forage from nature. Um, uh, uh, here in Wisconsin, we're still pretty new with, with Wisconsin food forests, so we haven't even really gotten into the whole um, thing that, that you and Brad are talking about. We're mostly just focusing on getting the plants in the ground mm -hmm. and then kind of we'll figure out the next steps eventually. Well, tell us then a little bit more about some of your ongoing projects. Sure. So we've we've planted at a couple churches here in the Madison area. Uh, we've we've planted uh, at a farm sanctuary. Um, then we've done some plantings on public land. Um, this this year we have uh, three main projects: uh, two at high schools, one in Wisconsin Dells and one in McFarland, just south of Madison. And then we're going to be planting at an uh, Indian reservation up near Hayward, Wisconsin, where they already have a bunch of established a apple, uh, cherry, and pear trees. And we're going to be going in and planting some, some berry bushes and some rhubarb in between the, the established fruit trees to make it more like a, like a food forest. Mm -hmm. And do you see uh, public reaction to these as you're beginning to work on these? Does there seem to be enthusiasm building? Yeah, yeah, especially with Lansing Food Forest because it's it's such a great example of a what a what a community food forest can be. Um, we we also planted one out at the Farley Center, which is out out by Verona, and they have uh, different events and usually concerts. And then after, after every concert, they're doing a free food forest tour. So we're trying to, to spread the word a little bit out there and people are getting excited and, and showing up for the, for the tours every month. So you've uh, both done such a wonderful job of describing the benefits and the process of these projects. What have been some of the biggest challenges you've faced um, so that we don't overlook the fact that these require work and maintenance, right? Um, mm -hmm. What have been the challenges that you feel like also might shed some light on, on how to transfer this idea to, to new places and what people might want to look out for? Uh, I'll turn it back to you, Brad, for challenges. So one of our biggest challenges uh, in the early days was um, uh, we had city hired crews um, cutting down our forests. And um, unfortunately, these crews did not have good um, uh, training and plant identification and so forth. So they would answer, say, a litter call. You know, there, there's litter to be picked up or maybe a, a fallen branch after a storm. And rather than just removing that branch of the litter, they'd remove everything. And uh, so um, we uh, created phone trees. So anytime a landscape crew was seen in the public right of way, neighbors would call each other and we'd approach them and uh, ask them to leave. Um, and uh, now things have, are changing in a good way in that uh, the city of Tucson now has a storm to shade program, which is a green infrastructure program. And uh, so finally we have um, allies within the city system uh, and uh, they are training crews um, from different companies throughout the community and uh, giving them good training and plant identification. I've been helping them with some of those trainings. And uh, so, and they have a different, um, uh, demand when they when they're brought to a site uh, in the past when they would cut everything out the landscape crews were trying to show evidence of work done 
okay, be it positive or negative. Now we're like, look, um, you don't have to leave any evidence of work. Uh, it's great if you don't, because uh, your driver, your, your mission is to enhance health and the vitality of these living systems, okay? Um, not, not clean them, not sterilize them, but enhance the health. So um, that's been great. Another challenge that we've had is uh, people not um, knowing the native plants. So they don't recognize it. They, uh, so they don't appreciate it. So we've been trying to train that up. And then uh, with our, in the Western U.S., you know, our, um, our arid climate, uh, the fact that uh, we don't want to create water consuming landscapes. Uh, ones that are going to be extracting more water from the groundwater, surface rivers, dying surface rivers, and so forth. So the way we set up our whole system is we plant the rain before we plant any plants, and we create these rain gardens, street-side rain gardens. Uh, we size them to harvest more rain in a year than all the vegetation we plant within and around them will consume once grown to maturity in a year. So we're providing all the water they need and more with extra to help recharge the aquifer. And all that vegetation and soil life helps bioremediate uh, any potential toxins off the street. So um, our goal, like that you know, we're asking of the landscape crews the city hires, is to enhance the overall health of our community. Not just these plantings, but our hydrology, the watershed, everything so you know how can we do stuff in a ways that we're not consuming more plastic say for drip irrigation systems but um, um, how can we instead uh, create a water system that's just using what's freely on site and using gravity to move it no pumps or anything like that uh, oh and if people are curious um, my website harvestingrainwater.com has my books and tons of info on harvesting rain and wet and dry climates that's Brad Lancaster of Tucson, Arizona's Neighborhood Foresters. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes. I'm talking about urban forests today with Brad Lancaster and Emily Steinway of Wisconsin Food Forests. If you'd like to join the conversation or have a question for my guests, please do give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. So, Emily, well, back to you with a question about challenges um what have been the biggest challenges you face so far in especially in getting these started yeah um i think i think uh our main challenge has been a lot of people don't know what a food forest is first of all um which is one reason why we wrote a children's book to try to educate people about about food forests and the plants that you can find in there um another challenge is that people think that food forests are messy um and they're they're worried that it's going to attract rats or um, other pests to their neighborhood, and so far that hasn't been the case. Um, they they are a little bit more messy than a mowed lawn, but there's so many benefits to to transforming a lawn into a food forest. I think it outweighs the little bit more mess that that you'll see. You just mentioned this beautiful paperback book, bilingual Spanish English, that you co-wrote with Erin uh, MacArthur, correct? McWalter. McWalter, thank yep. you. Um, it's called F is for Food Forest, an ABC book from Wisconsin Food Forest. Tell us more about this, Emily. Who is the book aimed at and, and what's the origin of this? Uh, so it was Aaron's idea. Aaron is the idea lady. 
Uh, and then she found our illustrator, Emily Marie Schroeder, on Instagram. Uh, she is a very talented Emily. She also translated the book into Spanish. So I, I wrote most of the, most of the words. Um, and then Erin and Emily kind of put it together. Uh, it's got hand-drawn watercolors. Uh, we've got the hardy kiwi. We've got fruit trees. We've got bushes. We've got some illustrations of some of the animals that you can find in the food forests. Uh, food forests are not just for people. They're also for wildlife, too. Yeah, so give us just a taste of it. Uh, read uh, uh, one of your favorite pages for us. Sure. So hardy kiwi. Hardy kiwi is a vine with small, sweet, fuzzy fruit. It needs a very sturdy trellis since the fruits are too heavy for the skinny vine. So you can hear from that. Thank you, Emily. This is uh, good for all ages, yes. right? Pretty much this yes. book. We, we've tested it on babies <laughs> um, and we found that adults like it too. Yeah. So anywhere in between. Yeah, and it's, it's uh, really beautifully made. So thank you for sharing that with the world. We have a little bit of time left, I think, to get into um, a few different issues. Um, first of all, I, I would like to talk a little bit about the idea of how we adapt what you've both learned from your experiences to other places, because obviously growing a food forest in Wisconsin and growing a food forest in Tucson, Arizona are very different. Place matters, right? Um, but what are some of the kind of universal lessons? If, if we have people out there listening and say, I'd like to try this, um, what are some of the universal lessons that you've both learned that are transferable from the models that you've been involved in? Brad, I'll turn to you first. Well, I'd say first, in terms of a community planting, all it takes is two people and one tree. And uh, that's the great start. And then it can grow from there. Um, and in terms of uh, what's informed or inspired our plant choices, we've just gone out uh, and looked to see, well, what grows out in the wild with no care? And that's why we focus so much on native plants in our area. You know, nobody waters them, nobody cares for them, and yet they thrive alone. So then we bring that into the built environment, the urban core, and um, try and plant it in a way it doesn't just survive, but really thrives by um, planting the rain before we plant the plants so they'll have more uh, water available even in the dry years. And this can work great in wet climates too when you've got your dry seasons. Um, and the great thing about these rain gardens is they capture not just rain, but everything that moves with gravity, including leaf drop um, and seed and bird manure. <laughs> so they become these very fertile uh, collection zones. Uh, now, they also collect, uh, you know, litter garbage, which some people may think is a problem, but I think it's a great asset because instead of the garbage being all over your neighborhood street, it's uh, concentrated. So it's much easier to pick up in that area. Um, so uh, when um, when you're trying to figure out, well, what do you plant where within a rain garden? Like, do you plant it in the low spot on the bank or up on the top outside of the basin? Again, we go to the natural world for our inspiration and we see, well, what species naturally grow in the low spots where water accumulates or is running by in an ephemeral channel? Those are the plants we plant in the basin bottoms. What is uh, not in the so wet areas? It's kind of the in-between zone. Uh, well, that's what we plant on the rain garden terrace. 
Uh, and then what are the species that uh, are not in those wetter areas? They're in the more the high parts than the in the foothills on the slopes. That's what we plant on the top zone of the rain garden. So we take our inspiration from that. Uh, and one last thing I'll just say is it's not just about planting. It's also um, it's particularly in the built environment, the urban environment. It's key that we be the stewards because uh you'll have to prune more often because you're alongside streets and pathways. So um, w rather than being dependent on outside crews, we've been putting a lot of effort into training the people that live, work, and play closest to these plantings because they're the most likely to love these plantings and to uh, get the most benefits. So we're trying to empower them with uh, hands-on workshops and uh, work parties and so forth so that when something's needed to be done, they can come forward. And even if they don't do the work, they, they know what's good work and what's bad work. Um, so it's the people that live in these forests driving the stewarding, not outside folks just trying to get more work. I think that's a great segue back to you, Emily, because earlier you were talking about some of the community involvement in the mm -hmm. Lansing Food Forest. And I've certainly seen that as well, where it seems like you've had volunteers spring up and just begin shaping the food forest in all kinds of different ways. Right. Yeah. Um, tell us more about that and uh, what you feel like some of the lessons learned so far have been. Uh, so so before you plant a food forest, like like Brad was saying, you want to study the native plants that grow in your area because a food forest is not not for everybody. Some some people have uh, more of a prairie habitat that's native to, to where they live. And so you might want to change some of the plants that you're selecting for your for your edible landscape. Um, and not, not just the plants, but also the location is really key um, to go in and talk to the people that live in the area where you want to plant before you plant. That's, that's why Lansing Food Forest has been so successful is because the community wanted it there and they were very supportive. And so they've showed up to the work days and they've, they've come and hung out there and gone on their own to, to work in the, in the food forest as well. So those are a couple important things to, to keep in mind. Yeah, and one thing we haven't talked about yet also is resources. Um, it does take some resources to make projects like this happen. Um, I'd love to hear you both talk a little bit about how you've um, found the resources to make these projects come to life. Go ahead, Emily. Uh, so Wisconsin Food Forest accepts donations. Um, we're a nonprofit, and most of our donations have come just from individuals who are interested in the food forest concept. Uh, before COVID, we did a Zoom-a-thon to raise funds, and we're hoping to do that again. And then we've also sold copies of our books at events and, and sold plants and, and cards at events to, to raise some money. Uh, most of our food forests are pretty small, and we're, we're starting with plants that are pretty small, so the cost is pretty minimal. Um, it's, it's in the hundreds of dollars uh, for, for most of our projects, so it's not, it's not that much. Uh, we've also had um, the fortune of working with some organizations where they want the food forest, and then they, they actually paid for half of the cost. Mm -hmm. So... And is that primarily for the plants themselves or trees? Yes. Yeah. yeah, the main mm -hmm. cost is for the plants. We also fence the plants when they're small. Uh, so there's there is some cost for the fencing. Uh, we've been getting our wood chips for free um, from a local uh, arborist, and the rest of the costs are pretty pretty minimal. 
And how about you there in Tucson, Brad? How have you and your community been able to sustain this effort so long? So uh, um, through education, so um, my books, Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond, give people, you know, the big picture, how to get started right off the bat. And then um, the the website, harvestingrainwater.com, lots of free info there. And on our neighborhoodforesters.org website, we create all these templates to show people, well, how do you organize a tree planting? How do you organize a stewarding party? So whether or not they do it exactly the same, um, we there's a template that they can work off of and evolve. Um, and we open up all our workshops to anyone from any neighborhood so they can come see how we do it. It gives them some ideas. Um, and we also, uh, through the neighborhood foresters, can uh, go and um, teach a workshop in their neighborhood or lead a work party in their neighborhood to kind of get them started and going. Um, when we are selecting plants, uh, for planting in a neighborhood, we look to what's already on that block of that neighborhood and we see what are the missing species. And then we bring in those missing species rather than just plant more of what's already there. Because our goal is to plant living seed banks, living nurseries on every block. So you don't have to walk more than a block to collect seed from a plant you want more of or to to dig up a seedling in the rainy season that you can transplant elsewhere, um, be it in your backyard or elsewhere on the street. Um, and uh, uh, I mentioned before, desertharvesters.org has got a cookbook, which could be a template for um, other native food forests elsewhere. I certainly have more questions, but in the time we have left, I'd love to ask or at least give you two the opportunity to get into conversation with each other. Do you have questions for each other or observations you'd like to make after listening to the, your respective stories? Um, Emily, anything for Brad? Um, Brad, so I'm clarifying question about your, your resources. So are you getting resources for, for buying the plants from the sales of your books? Uh, so the, or... they're separate entities. So the way we um, fund most of our plantings is uh, it's a fee for service to the neighbors. So um, we are um, Ganga, super great deal, way lower than market rates because we do stuff with volume discounts. So um, we're buying a bunch of plants all at once. So the nurseries give us a discount. We, um, when we do the water harvesting, we work with a back cooperator that just has to come in and dig all the basins all at once. So he gives us a great deal. Um, and and uh, if we rock the banks of the basin, same thing, we're getting a volume discount. Mm -hmm. um, and then people do give donations. So when we've got a household that can't afford, um, one of our installations, uh, then uh, the donations kick in to help pay for that. Um, yeah, uh, those are some of the ways we, we do it. Nice. Brad, yeah. anything for Emily? Yeah, I think the children's book's fantastic idea. So just wondering how you are getting that out into the community so people are aware of that children's book and, yeah. and are, are reading it. Um, so we self-published it on Amazon, which is actually pretty easy to do. And then you can, you can do print on demand. So, and when you're the author, it's a, it's a lower cost for, for each book. And so people can, can purchase it through our website. And then we're also selling it at events, um, as well as giving it away at, um, 
at schools or any anybody that, that can afford it will will give them a book. Uh, so basically, um, spreading it that way. Oh, we also have a couple of volunteers who are putting them in little free libraries around town. So we're nice. we're getting them out that way as well. Awesome. To wrap up today, I'd love to hear you both um, just reflect briefly um, about how you see the role of the food forest in the larger effort to uh, ameliorate climate change, mitigate climate change, uh, make a more livable uh, built environment for us in cities as we face so many different kinds of intersecting crises. Um, Brad, I'll turn it to you first. Well, first off, I think we need to ask the question, why does our community exist where it does? So um, my community of Tucson would not exist if it weren't for the abundant natural food forests that unfortunately we've been eradicating over the many de decades. Um, and it wouldn't exist if it hadn't been for the Santa Cruz River that used to flow year round and the groundwater table that used to be just below the surface because of the rich living sponge of all these food forests, you know, the vegetation carpeting the watershed that would help the water infiltrate and recharge that groundwater and then the river. Um, and uh, so we've been wiping that out. So with our food forests, we're trying to bring all that back. And we've noticed that um, you know, soil is much more moist in our neighborhoods where we're doing this water harvesting than neighborhoods that are not. Um, and the temperatures have dropped significantly. So Tucson has the is the third fastest rising temperatures of any city in the US is uh, what a recent report said. And uh, we found that under the canopy of our um, uh, trees and, and shrubs and so forth, uh, we're able to get a, um, a 20 degree difference in temperatures, over a 20 degree difference in temperatures. So we're planting the living air conditioners for the present and the future. Um, that all also sequester carbon and help generate more uh, rain through the uh, beneficial um, microorganisms living in the stomata, the bacteria, beneficial bacteria in the stomata of the plants, which goes up into the atmosphere, creates the ideal cloud seeds, and then the rain, the clouds form around that, rain comes down. Wonderful. Thanks so much. That's Brad Lancaster of Neighborhood Foresters in Tucson, Arizona. Thanks for being with us, Brad. Thank you. And Emily, uh, thank you so much for coming into the studio today and for telling us all that we have a service berry right out here in front of the studio. Thanks You're for being welcome. here. Thanks for having me. And good luck in uh, your work, both of you. Thank you for sharing the story of urban food forests. I've been talking today with Emily Steinway, co-founder of Wisconsin Food Forests, Brad Lancaster, Tucson, Arizona. I'm your host, Douglas Haynes, and I'd like to thank today's engineer, Andrew Thomas, producer Jade Isiri Ramos, and news director, Shali Pittman. Thank you, listeners, for joining us today on A Public Affair here at WRT 89.9 FM.